You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Today's sermon comes from Mark 5, 21 through 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman who was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she had heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they had said, Jesus told them, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he had put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talium koam, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Greetings, CBF family. It's so good to be together. Those joining us online as well, it's good to be in the house of God together. And we have been going through this series in Mark's gospel called Jesus the Servant King. And one of the images that we have seen along the way to help us understand this this magnificent book is that of a mosaic. That what Mark does as he goes along in this 
uh, in, in this gospel is pieced together a, a magnificent mosaic of, of the life of Jesus Christ, piece by piece. And some significant pieces are added to that image, to that story here in this, in this story this morning that is found in the midst of these four mighty acts of Jesus that run from Mark 4, 35, all the way through 5, verse 43 here. And these mighty acts all demonstrate Jesus' power over nature, demons, disease, and death itself. Last week in Mark 5, 1 through 20, we saw how Jesus dramatically liberated a demon-possessed man, restored him, and we saw how in Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, the liberating power of the kingdom, the saving mercy of God, and the worldwide expansion of the gospel are made manifest. So today, we turn now to Mark 5, 21 through 43. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer before we dive in? Father, we praise you for this precious time to gather with our fellow partners in the gospel to worship you, to hear from your word. We pray that you who began a good work in each of us will carry it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Lord, would our love for you, would our love for one another abound more and more. Grant us knowledge, Lord, and depth of insight so that we may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless at the day of Jesus Christ. Lord, fill us with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. One time not too long ago, I was uh, sitting with my daughter, Izzy, who, I mean, kind of proud papa moment, gave a couple, couple good answers there. I mean, I'm just gonna, not going to lie about that. That's pretty good. I think she was the one that said, who should we invite to church? Everybody. I love that. Sitting with her, though, and asked her, who, who, is, your favorite, who is your favorite character in the Bible? I said, other than Jesus, you know, just to give a free pass there, right? And she said, the little girl. Like, the little girl? Yeah, the little girl. And quickly came to realize that she identifies with and found herself in this story, that of this little girl who Jesus takes by the hand. It says, Talithakum, little girl, arise. It's amazing how we find ourselves in the story here in Scripture. And it's also, I think, one thing that leaps off the page at me is the power of touch. Perhaps something that we had ingrained in our minds, especially during the pandemic, when there was such a long stretch where we were not even able to be with one another, let alone hug one another. The, the, the power of a simple touch like a hug communicates so much, especially in a time of grief or in a time of sorrow. But human touch, you know, gives us other, it communicates other things as well. So like, where are the, let's see, we've got the Mangrish girls up here. Can you guys give each other a high five? I'm putting you on the spot. Let me hear that slap. A powerful high five. Can you do it? That was, that was so-so. How about where are the Estes boys? Are they in the back there? They're spread out everywhere. Can you guys give each other a high five? I want to hear it. Oh, man, that was awesome. 
with authority. I know, I put you guys on the spot. That was good. That was good in the back, too. It's amazing what just that sort of interaction, a chest bump or a high five or a big bear hug like that can communicate. And in the story that we find here this morning, we encounter a touch of faith. And not only that, but a, a simple held hand. And whether in need of a touch of faith or a, a, a held hand this morning, my prayer is that God would meet every, meet every one of us, not only that we would see ourselves in the story, but that he would meet, meet each and every one of us where we are and center our faith in the person of Jesus Christ. In our time together this morning, we're going to examine two interwoven miracles that we heard read in Mark 5. Thank you, Ashley. Arrive at the bottom line. That is the thrust of this passage as it relates to us as listeners here in the 21st century. And be challenged with a few takeaways. That's really where the rubber meets the road. And so right off the bat, we discover that Jesus hears the pleas of the distressed, verses 21 through 24. The story begins with Jesus returning from the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And as you recall, Jesus demonstrated power not only over nature in the calming of the raging sea, but also over the demons in the restoring of this demon-possessed man in verses 1 through 20. And he returns to more familiar territory, and there's a huge crowd that is waiting there to greet him. And almost immediately, the spotlight focuses squarely on this man named Jairus, who is described in the text as the synagogue leader. The synagogue, if you know the story, was the center of Jewish worship during the time of Jesus. It had a large room with benches along the walls, a special place for the scrolls to be kept. And services there included things like singing and prayers and scripture readings from the Law and the Prophets, instruction based on those readings, and a final benediction. Sound familiar? Well, as the leader of the synagogue, Jairus was responsible for arranging the services, making sure they went smoothly. So you can just picture him hopping on planning center every week, you know, and making sure the services are planned out and everyone's scheduled to serve and all that. Maybe not quite, but you get the idea. But as leader of the synagogue, he was also a, a prominent member of the community, a man of high social standing. And I think it's also worth pointing out here that not every member of the religious, among the religious leaders rejected Jesus. In fact, here was this synagogue leader sensing that Jesus was being used by God and going to him in the midst of what was a desperate situation. His daughter is nearing death. She is his only daughter, as Luke 8, 42 points out, adding even more to the raw emotions of the story. And she's only 12 years old. Do we have any girls among us here that are 12 years old? Close. Maya, how old are you? 11. So picture Maya here. Man, I'm just, I'm sorry, I just keep putting you on the spot. <laughs> I'm going to get it afterwards. That's okay. And this little girl should have had her whole life ahead of her. She's rapidly deteriorating. Jairus is desperate. Based on her age and gender, this little girl had almost no social status in contrast to her father. And he throws himself at Jesus' feet in a sign of humility, pleads with Jesus to come to his house. He believes that Jesus has the power to dramatically intervene. And Jairus asks Jesus to lay hands on his daughter, that touch so that she might be healed. And moved to compassion, he agrees to go. 
but it is as he heads for Jairus' home that the first miracle then gets woven into the drama. Verses 25 through 34 show us that Jesus has the power to overcome disease. As Jesus makes his way toward Jairus' home, the crowd moves along with him, in fact, pressing in all around him. And in the midst of the confusion and the crowd pressing in around him, we are introduced to a woman, also in a desperate situation. You see, she had been suffering from from some sort of hemorrhage for 12 grueling years, the same amount of time that the girl had been alive. The hopelessness of her situation is accented by the fact that no one was able to help her or heal her. All of the doctors that she saw, all of her finances that were expended in order to seek healing and wholeness, and to make matters worse, her bleeding made her ceremonially unclean. According to the Old Testament law, Leviticus 15, verse 25 says, when a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. Verse 27 then says of the same chapter, anyone who touches them will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water and they will be unclean till evening. So if anyone even came into contact with her, they too would become unclean. This was not only a matter of shame, but it effectively cut her off from the social and religious life. She was relegated essentially to the, to the margin of society. And in the midst of this giant crowd pressing in, the woman approaches Jesus. You can sense how she is trying to remain hidden and to go unnoticed. Perhaps she fears that Jesus would not touch her, an unclean woman. And she desperately reaches forward and and barely touches his cloak. And she is what? Immediately and miraculously healed. Twelve agonizing years overturned in a single touch of faith. As if the scene couldn't include enough drama, Luke 8, adds that she touches the edge of his cloak, perhaps referring to the blue tassel on the garment that symbolized the Jewish man's obedience to the law. It could be that she touched the very part of Jesus' clothing that symbolizes his religious purity the most. You can just imagine the woman re- remaining in shock as this crowd continues to move. But this doesn't go unnoticed. What does Jesus say? Verse 30. Who touched my clothes? I love the disciples. I love how much I see myself perhaps in their story, sometimes in their knuckle-headedness. Is that a word? I'll use it. Um, I think it's attributed, this is attributed to Peter in Luke's gospel, if I remember correctly. And so it is also almost with a note of impatience that they reply, you see the people crowding against you. It reminds me of like, you know, Captain Obvious in those Hotels.com commercials, like, thank you, Captain Obvious. (sighs) Well, the word for pressing here has a background of like crushing grapes. They're being squeezed from all around. Why does he care? Why should he care about a single touch? The reason Jesus asks who touched him is because he realizes, verse 30, that power has gone out from him. 
I can think of no other places in the Gospels where this part of a miracle story is described. That is, of Jesus becoming weak so that somebody else could become strong. Jesus doesn't ask this because he's surprised by what happened. This isn't an accidental discharge into a clearing barrel. I realize very few people will probably get that image. That is a, <laughs> that's a military image. I, I don't even know if it's worth describing or not. Does anybody know what that means? There's like two. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. But okay, briefly. So like these clearing barrels are used in front of different facilities and so forth, so you clear your weapon to make sure that it's not loaded before going to a place like a, a dining hall or something like that. And every once in a while, you're standing along line waiting to clear your weapon, and you'll hear, and you're like, oh man, somebody did it again. Some private down the line. <laughs> this is not some accidental fire into a clearing barrel. He knew exactly what was happening. He chose to heal the woman when she touched the fringe of his garment. And he wanted the woman to reveal herself. I think we'll see why here in a moment. But, but imagine, if you will, for a moment, what is happening, what is going through Jairus' mind at this point in the story? Perhaps his own impatience during this exchange. This exchange. His daughter, after all, is dying Think about how these types of situations would be triaged in an emergency facility, right? Why the wait? Have you ever seen like an emergency vehicle stuck in traffic, not able to get to its intended destination? I remember being in DC one time and there was such a log jam and the car that wouldn't get out of the way was the tiniest little Miata I'd ever seen. And they literally came over the intercom and said, excuse me, Mr. Miata, would you get out of the way? That's what it feels like here. Why the wait? Well, the woman realizes at this point that Jesus knows what happened and expresses faith publicly by throwing herself at his feet, much like Jairus at the beginning of the story threw himself at Jesus' feet. And everyone around them listens into this exchange as she shares the whole truth of this covert operation to touch Jesus. And they too are shocked to hear these, what is the, the reality that she was instantly and completely healed. How would Jesus respond? Daughter, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. He addresses her in this familial term of warmth, of love, daughter, emphasizing that she is part of the family. And the reason he calls her out is so that he can recognize her faith and public, publicly restore her in the eyes of this community. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. He writes, daughter, you took a risk of faith, and now you're healed and whole. Live well. Live blessed, be healed of your plague. She recognized the power that Jesus had and was healed because she simply had faith. Not because she had enough faith, but that she had faith. It wasn't the amount of her faith that mattered, but the object of her faith. 
And as a result, she experiences what? Peace, shalom, peace with God. Well, in turning to the second of these two miracle stories, we see in verses 35 through 43 that Jesus has the power to overcome death itself. Just as Jesus publicly commends the woman's faith and sends her off with a blessing, a messenger arrives with bad news. Essentially, Jairus' daughter is dead. There's no point in bothering the teacher anymore. Might as well turn back. You can only imagine the emotions that Jairus dealt with in the moment. Not only sorrow, but confusion perhaps at why Jesus delayed. And the phrase, why bother the teacher anymore, assumes that Jesus can heal the sick, perhaps even the dying, but that he cannot overcome the riddle of death. It's beyond his capability. The text says that in that moment, Jesus turns to Jairus. I love that personal, that personal touch. And says, don't be afraid, just believe. Jesus prepares Jairus for the great work he is about to do. The faith Jesus calls for is a recognition of his power and capability to deliver deliver this child from death itself. And the fact that Jairus lets Jesus proceed to his house shows that he has such faith. And his faith demonstrates, his faith is demonstrating in letting Jesus even into the house after coming into contact with this woman who is dramatically healed. Well, I love how the story reads, how Jesus ditches the crowd, brings along Peter, James, and John to accompany him further. This is a pattern that we see in in Mark's gospel in key places in the narrative where he brings in these inner three into some very special times and situations. Yes, he focuses ministry on the crowd, but he spent even more time imparting his life to, to the 12, and here he is focusing even more on the three, on the three. And when they arrive, the scene is one of the typical wailing and mourning that you would find in this time period. And with a prominent family like this, these are most likely professional mourners that have been hired even to to express this grief. Jesus says, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. Of course, the reaction there is one of laughing at him. They know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the girl is dead. But God's power is capable of all kinds of surprises. Jesus invites not only the inner three, but he invites the mother and the father into this room together, this room where she lay. He takes the lifeless girl by the hand You know, even this act would make him ceremonially unclean according to the Old Testament. But bringing her to life is more important than observing these rituals. His touch communicates compassion. And he says to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. This This is such a warm, such a term of endearment. It'd be the equivalent, perhaps, of us, maybe even a parent today, saying to a a waking child, honey, get up. Honey, get up. I I, I wish that's what I sounded like in the morning trying to get my kids to wake up. 
honey, get up. At that very moment, she breathes again. Her hand is already in Jesus' hand so that he can help her to her feet. And she is not beyond the power of Jesus to overcome even death itself. One can imagine the shock and amazement that the parents experience as their daughter rises to her feet and is given something to eat. I love Jesus' practicality in the moment here, like, hey, maybe give her something to, to nibble on. And sorrow turns to complete euphoria. And in stark contrast to what he does at the end of the restoring of the demon-possessed man in the previous story, here he gives them explicit instructions to not tell anyone what has happened. Why? There's a pattern of this along the way in, in Mark's gospel, perhaps because he desires that his miracles not become the focal point of his ministry. He did not want the emphasis to fall on the wrong place. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Hmm. You know, these two interwoven miracles demonstrate Jesus' power over disease and, yes, death itself. His power overcomes barriers. It is extended to anyone from those with high social standing like Jairus to those who are on the margin of society like the woman, and yes, even to children like Jairus' daughter. Ultimately, his power and authority testify to the fact that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God. And the rising of Jairus' daughter is a sign of God's power to bring about our future resurrection because death is not the end of the story. Because of this and what this passage points to, I believe the bottom line is this, place your faith. Oh, church, place your faith in Jesus, the one who has the power to overcome disease and death. Because it is not how much faith you have that matters, but ultimately who your faith is in. Put another way, it's not ultimately about the amount of faith that we have or even the quality of the faith that we have, but the object of our faith, Jesus Christ himself, the one who suffered and died and rose again so that you and I could be restored, made whole, experience shalom. In light of this this core truth, I think this passage is full of characteristics of what this faith in Jesus Christ looks like. Here are four of them. I'm sure there are many others. I would look forward to this being teased out more in our ethos communities during the week. Here are four to consider along the way. First, faith recognizes the power of Jesus. Jairus saw this. He saw in Jesus someone who was capable of doing something about his situation. The woman, too, approached Jesus in faith, hoping to merely touch the edge of his garment. Faith recognizes that Jesus demonstrates God's own power. Jesus has the power to overcome disease and death, and he does so without becoming ceremonially unclean himself. He is more than capable of taking on our impurity, and that is exactly what he did at the cross. 1 Peter 2, 24 reminds us, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds, you have been healed. This is the gospel on full display in this passage in many ways, but particularly in this way. Faith recognizes the power of Jesus. And yes, faith reaches toward the only true healer. 
Jairus could have gone to other sources. He could have gone to other gurus, other healers, but he approaches Jesus. He humbles himself. He kneels at Jesus' feet. For the woman, she had tried all kinds of other options. We see the, the, her, her situation unraveling even in what she tried to do. In fact, I should, probably should have brought this with me, but there are some fascinating similar accounts in that day of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, other first century sources of what people did in going to these doctors in order to find healing and some of the methods that they had to employ in order to be healed. One of them involves like holding an ostrich egg in a particular way and for a particular length of time. It's really fascinating. But there was no recovery in sight. There was no end to her ostracism and she demonstrates even a flicker of faith as she reaches toward the true healer in her desperation. And what does Jesus do? He fans that, fla- that, that faith into flame. I just created a tongue twister, I realized. He publicly recognizes her faith and he restores her to the community. I think it's tempting for us too to seek answers in all kinds of other places before going to the true source of healing. It's tempting for us to look I mean, this might be a silly example, but uh, how many of us have become, you know, YouTube experts in how to fix things around the house? (laughs) Sometimes uh, unraveling into worse situations as a result. Self-help books, so-called experts, why would we seek answers anywhere else but the living God? Before reaching out in any other direction, let us reach toward the true healer. Third, faith accepts God's timing of events. Hmm. You know, this might be a part of the story that spoke, that spoke to me the most. Faith accepts God's timing of events. It would have been very easy for Jairus to become disillusioned with Jesus. Why was he stalling? His daughter needed help now. And his worst fears were realized when word of his daughter's death reached them. But in the midst of it, Jairus demonstrated patient faith. Friends, God will will do his work in his time and in his way. I know sometimes we wish we could be in the room where it happens, right? We wish we could be at the table when these plans are made. I think about our family and the story we shared two weeks ago about our journey toward parenthood. And all of the twists and turns along the way. God knew the end from the beginning and everywhere in between, and He's not done yet. Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is right now that He's calling you in this season perhaps of waiting, Friends, God does not waste waiting. He knows. He sees. He cares. He knows the end from the beginning and everywhere in between. Faith recognizes that Jesus is the one we can trust in even when it is necessary to wait. And He is the one we can trust in even when the answer is no. For the reality is that not everyone who comes seeking physical healing in this life receives that, part of his mystery. We find ourselves even in the midst of the story there, how faith accepts God's timing of events. 
Fourth, faith perseveres in the face of obstacles. You know, there are a couple ways that this leapt off the page at me. One is Jairus bucked the trend among the other religious leaders who had been increasing in their hostility, their, their opposition to Jesus along the way. And here he is, one of the few who go to him in his time of desperation and humble himself at his feet and do so publicly. I think about Nicodemus, you know, the, you hear this, I've, I love how somebody described that story as Nick at night. You know, going to Jesus under cover of darkness, here is this synagogue leader coming to Jesus publicly and throwing himself at his feet. In his desperation, in his humility, the woman pressed through the intimidating crowd and overcame the fear and sense of shame in reaching out to touch him, acknowledging his power to heal. Jairus pressed on when told the unbearable news of his daughter's death. He trusted in in Jesus' verdict in the face of the laughter of the mourners and all the evidence before him to the contrary. Faith moves forward in the midst of intimidation and fear, mocking and scorn, because it is ultimately about who our faith is in. Faith perseveres in the face of obstacles. Church, place your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who has the power to overcome disease and death itself, because it is not how much faith you have that matters, but who your faith is in. Faith recognizes the power of Jesus, reaches toward the only true healer, accepts God's timing of events, and perseveres in the face of obstacles. You know, I see the gospel on display in this passage. There are several ways, I think, that it, it shines forth. But in this text, we see, we see a powerful picture of the cross. Something for us to reflect on even as we approach the Lord's table here this morning. For it is at the cross that Jesus experienced wounds and weakness so that we could be healed and made strong. It is at the cross that Jesus took our impurity and our shame so that we could be cleansed and forgiven. It is at the cross that Jesus lost hold of his Father's hand so that God could say to us, honey, get up, so that God could take us by the hand and never let us go. This is the gospel on full display. Church, place your faith in Jesus the one who has the power to overcome disease and death itself. Because it is not um, how much faith you have that matters, but ultimately who your faith is in, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this magnificent story. We pray that you would take these truths, you would plant them deep within us, Lord, fan our faith into further flame. We thank you, Lord, that it is ultimately about who our faith is in. And so, God, we worship you. We thank you for your, that you are a miracle-working God. And Lord Jesus, we praise you for the cross, for your giving of yourself in love. Lord God, how you have taken us by the hand, how you have said, Honey, get up, and that you will never let us go.
We love you, Lord. We worship you. We praise you together among your saints. We pray all this in the precious, matchless, magnificent name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.